Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Welcome to the conversation. My name is Benjamin Dixon, host of the Benjamin Dixon Show. I'm excited to be joined today by Catherine Torres and Liam Good. Uh, they are both of Biden Jubilee 100 Strikers. Uh, and you can find out more about them at Biden100.debtcollective.org. Uh, Catherine and Liam, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Lovely to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for. No, also thank you so much for joining us. Could you tell us about this? I, I've, I've read over about your um, the action that you're taking and the uh, events that you're having, but could you help the audience understand the significance of what you all are working on in this moment? Kat, why don't you start first? Yes, um, the Biden Jubilee is a group of 100 that are going on a debt strike to demand that President Biden eliminate all federal student debt within the first hundred days that he is in office. Mm. That's that's you know that stood out to me the most as a person with plenty of student debt. Um, tell us more about the debt strike. What is that? What does that actually mean in terms of people who are participating with you, Liam? Yeah. So as as we know, Biden has extended the moratorium, so it's actually the safest time to actually go on strike because we can stop. We don't have to pay right now. And so we need to use this moment to prove that the government doesn't need this money. They, they can clearly do without it. We need this money. We need to live debt free. And so the way we're doing this is organizing people into a debtors union. We're forming chapters. We're, you know, learning from the labor movement, learning from the sunrise movement. And we're building power so that we're no longer fighting individually, but we're fighting collectively uh, you know, when you combine all the money that we owe, it's a, and we we threaten to withhold that money. That's a real threat. Mm. No, absolutely. There's there's always power in collective action, and uh, on in this case, it's almost as if it's a consumer action in this debt. I, I do have one question uh, for you, Catherine, specifically about um, your thoughts on the hesitation. Um, the fact that you all have to organize this in the first place, even with the Biden, Biden administration, speak on that for me, if you don't mind. Um, well, what I can say about a debt strike, um, personally, the way my story came about is I'm a former student of a for-profit college. I attended the Art Institute of California, Los Angeles. My school was sued for fraud by the Department of Education in 2011. Mm -hmm. So I began debt striking against my federal loans and my private loans in 2013. I joined up with the Debt Collective around that time. Um, the issue with student loans, particularly federal student loans, is that due to years of deregulation of you know allowing private companies to come in and manage education, 
they've been exploiting students. And over the years, we're seeing that the student debt is contributing to a giant racial gap Mm. in wealth. Um, A lot of lower economic communities and poorer communities are being held back from owning homes, from starting businesses, from basically moving up. Um, We tried 10 years ago to get the administration to try to dismiss the debt when it was at one trillion. Right now we're about at 1.7 trillion. Um, And a lot of people don't realize that the student debt crisis is actually mimicking the housing loan crisis that happened in 2000 and 2008. So if we don't do something about it now, we're going to face another economic collapse that, again, is going to disproportionately affect communities of color and, you know, poor communities. Right, right. right. And, right. and, and as, as we discuss those things, it's it's really clear the direct connection between um, that you link there. Right. The the way we could look at the housing crisis versus the oncoming uh, oncoming um, debt student debt crisis. Uh, Liam, for me, that that still begs the question, why are. Why are Democrats even, and not to get into the politics of it, but maybe even the economics of it, do they have a justifiable reason to offer us 10000 or 50000 versus the entirety of the student debt? Well, I think we need to look at who's saying it. Did they give us any, any reason? Um, I don't recall Biden explaining why 10000 mm. was. Um, and so I don't really know. I, I would be speculating otherwise. Um, but the research shows that the more you forgive, the more equity this creates, the more this overcomes that racial and gendered wealth gap, because women hold two thirds of this debt totally, and then black women hold the most debt. Mm. And um, this is also strangely tied in with the military. They recruit people of color and they prey on low income communities because that's the only way people can go to school, a lot of people. I've got friends who are thinking about it. It's the only way they could afford to go to college. So by forgiving this debt and by making school fully funded and making it a public good, we would actually be affecting our society in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. including the military and mm-hmm. you know imperialist wars. Yeah, no, absolutely. If, if, if we can't ascertain or speculate as to why they're hesitant about this. Mm -hmm. I know you all, your research and everything that you've gathered can help us understand how effective canceling all the debt could be. Catherine, could you just speak about like the different ways liberating people from the student debt really is an economic boom? And if we look at trends throughout the, you know, the last decades, the middle class is shrinking and the lower class is growing. Canceling federal student loan debt and even private debt would help equal the playing field. It would immediately boost the economy instead of having to deal with Congress arguing over 10,000, 50,000. They just need to cancel the entire amount because if they don't deal with it now, I guarantee a very soon future administration is going to have to deal with this issue. Mm. Mm. Leo, and uh, discuss so- somewhat of the mechanism of canceling. Like, uh, Explain to the audience why it is feasible for us to demand this of the Biden administration in the first 100 days. How would it play out? Yeah. So the way the Debt Collective has been advocating for full cancellation is through a mechanism called compromise and settlement. 
You don't even need Congress's approval. Biden, along with Secretary of Education, can literally just sign this debt away. It's that easy. And that's why uh, we're all pretty outraged that uh, not only with the 10,000 know, crumbs, which wouldn't even affect people's interest, um, <laughs> but it's like it's actually really easy. Yeah. It's not like we have to force Congress to do this. No, I, I, I'm, I'm laughing instead of crying because truly 10,000 wouldn't even affect the interest that I have. Right. Um, <laughs> Catherine, so, so then let's ex, 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 expand that, that question in terms of the, the hesitation, not only the hesitation, but the mechanisms of getting ac- accomplished. Um, I, I think there's a disconnect for a lot of people. So Catherine, I, I don't really want to belabor that same point again, but can you convey in your own words the ease with which we can actually get this done? We don't need congressional approval at all. There, the, the president can literally direct his secretary of education to dismiss all federal debt now. Um, wow. I I think at this point, instead of fighting over an economic package and a stimulus, that this is something that we can do immediately mm. to just give relief to the lower class. Mm. The winners and losers in this winners, uh, Liam, would be um, the American people as well as the American economy. Uh, we only have about two minutes left here, but who would be on the list of losers? Who's actually opposing this? That's a really good question. And I haven't given it a lot of thought, but I mean, when when I think about who's opposing this, uh, I'm thinking of the the neoliberal regime that thinks this is uh, somehow un- impossible, mm. and it, it may have to do with the power of the the servicers who con- uh, have you know bought up this debt. Um, but I honestly, Kat, maybe you can speak to that because mm. when I think of those who oppose it. Um, <laughs> I'm, it's usually just uh, kind of moderate uh, politicians. I mean, yeah. um, I don't see it as there's actually losers in this. The only people that I feel losing are people dumb and kind of got the whole student debt crisis rolling. Um, the only people that are opposing it right now are basically special interest groups that are lobbying our Congress members you know, for for for-profit schools, Um, you know, businesses that exploited, you know, low-income communities and had students sign up for predatory loans. Those are the only people that are losing. Um, I think the benefit to the general public kind of outweighs any sort of argument that there's people that are going to be losing in this situation. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Catherine Torres and Liam Good, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Tell everyone really quickly the best way they can join in. Thanks for having us. The best way to, to join would be going to the Debt Collective's website and signing up to join the, the union and join onto these calls. You'll sign absolutely. the petition, pass the petition on. And when you get onto these calls, we've got working groups and we've got a lot of different ways, low risk and, um, you know, larger things to take on lots of different ways. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us.
Welcome back to The Conversation. My name is Benjamin Dixon, host of The Benjamin Dixon Show and The Morning Trap. You can check it out here every morning on YouTube. I'm pleased to be joined this afternoon by Chris Stewart. He is the CEO of Bright Beam, and you can find him on Twitter at Citizen Stewart. Chris, how are you? Thanks so much for joining us. I'm doing well, man. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, the pleasure's ours. Could you tell us a little bit about your work at Bright Beam? So at Brightbeam, we characterize our work as shining a light on the least of these, the children in cities that are prosperous, that have booming economies, but for some reason they have faces at the bottom of the well that aren't, uh, their, their issues are not being taken care of by municipal leaders. We actually work to put those municipal leaders on the hook for the child outcomes in their cities. Mm. Could you uh, expound on that? Because it sounds like very important work. Uh, could you give us some examples of, of, of your work in action? Well, let me just say this where it started. So for, I, I, for at least five years, I've been traveling a lot, talking to parents and students and educators about what they want in their schools and about education. But something on the side started happening when I was going from city to city. I was going from Seattle to San Francisco mm-hmm. to, I, you know, I live here in the Twin Cities, and I saw a pattern. And the pattern was this. In all these places where I was, there were cranes and there were condos and there were coffee shops and there were yoga studios going up. And in each one of those places, there were these booming economies, but there were people that were being marginalized. There were kids that we were talking to who we were reasonably assured would never live the lifestyle of the cities that they were growing up in. They could see it. They could touch it. They could smell it. It was right there. But when you would ask a mayor, city council members, others, like, does it ever bother you? that you have kids in your own city who will never live the San Francisco lifestyle, will never live the Seattle lifestyle. The answers were always pretty vague, pretty essentialist, and nobody wanted to take credit for it. So we did a report uh, over a year ago to try and put them on the hook, to just show them, put a mirror up to all these very progressive cities with all this money, these booming economies, and kids at the bottom of the well. Um, and that, that report was called Shame of Progressive Cities. It was really meant to start the activism around, we are going to come for you. We are gonna put you on the hook. You should not be able to run for mayor and wash your hands of what the black kids in your city, uh, what type of opportunities they have. Like, you know, whether they're gonna, you know, uh, um, um, San Francisco Public Schools is a great example. Wealthiest county in California. God might say that they're, they're wealthiest on the planet Earth in some ways. Um, only 7% black kids in their school district in the first place. And they have the worst outcomes with black students in the state of California. Um, and that just didn't make any sense for us. Like, we're like, that don't make sense. You have money. <laughs> you have all these condos. <laughs> um, I, I'm actually taken aback by that um, because I, we see this all over the country. Um, what I'm afraid to ask, what do they credit the disparity too, because, you know, historically they would credit it to some type of inherent moral failing. Um, but obviously that's not the case. So how did that unpack and unfold? You know, when it comes to black and brown students, what I call educational essentialism is pretty, it's pretty resolute. There are people who honestly believe that by your melanin content and your economic status that you're born to fail like that you know so so a lot of it is the talk is around it's just poverty it's not you know anything more than that but you can show them like you have more money than a lot Mm -hmm. of other places in this country you have resources what show me your budget and i'll tell you what you care about yeah (laughs) show me the budget of show me the budget of san francisco as a city or their school district and i'll tell you what they care about 
in a lot of cases, especially before the pandemic, I would have said to you, our black kids and our brown kids are going to schools where they have fewer resources, more needs, lowered expectations, schools that often put the least prepared teachers in front of the kids that need the best teachers, schools that punish them more harshly, see them as older. This is what research tells us. They see black kids as older than they are. They adultify them. They punish them more harshly. I know you know all this already, but when you start putting it all together, you're like, well, damn, this is rigged. Yeah. This is actually rigged, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, no, it's 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 just bringing back a lot of memories um, of how I almost didn't make it out of out of um, the school system um, for some of the same exact reasons that you're outlining. So it it is it is kind of jarring to just hear it on, from the research side, um, especially because so many of us have experienced it uh, experientially. Um, my question is is how are they responding to your efforts? Because obviously what you're doing is significant, it's important, but it's shining in an uncomfortable light onto these cities. So I'm sure like it, it hasn't all been a positive reaction, but what type of reactions have you been seeing to your work? No, you know, what's interesting is we have activists in all the cities that we work in. We work across issues. So we work across issues of criminal justice and other, um, other issues that are important and germane to the families that we care about. And in, in all of those cases, like the police respond to you one way, the school district respond, any, any of the institutions respond very defensively. Mm. Uh, they all have very good reasons for why things are the way they are. What we have learned and what we understand is that, that the activism has to be ceaseless. You just have to stay on top of them. People can't run for office without having to answer tough questions about the children and the families in their cities, mm. um, especially those that are being left behind. I just want to say, you know, a year ago, I would have said all this to you about the with the situation that we're in. A year later, what I want to say is this past year has been disastrous for black mm -hmm. education. Our, our people are falling behind in ways that are just so critical. We're taking a data vacation. We don't have good numbers and we want something big out of this new administration to pay us back for the problems that we're having in education. Mm. What, what type of ask are you asking of the current administration on those specific issues? Yeah, and I should, you know, qualify this by saying we're going to ask and we're going to demand, but we're not, we're not, you know, a hundred percent sure we're going to get everything. Absolutely. But listen, yeah. at, at the federal level, we want internet for all. We want internet should not be a luxury, right? We have 16 to 17 million children that still live in households without access to broadband, high-speed broadband. We have 7 million kids that don't have the adequate devices that they need to do this disaster that we call remote learning right now. We want a big Marshall Plan type of movement out of this administration, no, no small tweaks. We also want them to rebuild the Office of Civil Rights. This last administration, the Office of Civil Rights in the U.S. Department of Education has been gutted and it's almost useless at this point. We need them to rebuild it and make sure that we get good information and data out of that office. We also want to end to the surveillance practices that are embedded in education that people aren't paying attention to that infringe on the dignity of our students. We are surveilling students. I'll give you one example. There, there's a district I can point you to where they actually share the student data with the sheriff's department and the sheriff's department runs a prediction of whose school's records are going to lead to criminals and they act on that. So they have a list of kids that have never committed a crime, but they are predicting are going to be uh, um, criminals based on the information that's being shared with them quietly with the, from the school district. We want a national end to anything like that. Um, we also want SROs. 
uh, officers, the money that we spend on policing kids, we want redirected into mm -hmm. things to help kids not have problems in the first in, in the first place. Um, the last thing I'll share, because we have a list of demands, we want some real power sharing. We want Title One. It's a lot. It's great to put money into Title One. We want Title One parents to have some real power at the highest of levels. We want them to be heard and seen in all the processes that go into to policy making. Mm. Uh, so a, a lot of what you're asking is nothing short of revolutionary, not because of what you're asking, but because of how intransigent the system is. Um, I, I love how you put it that none of this is going to happen without relentless uh, activism. Uh, tell everyone how they because I'm going to sign up too because this this is really um, a, a difficult topic for me. Um, how can everyone else join in and help this effort? So you can join us by finding us at brightbeamnetwork.org or you can go to voicetoaction.org, um, which is our platform where you can actually sign petitions. Right now we have one that is aimed at the Biden administration to ask for a list of things, some of which I mentioned here today. If you go to voicetoaction.org, you can find us there. And what are some of the next immediate events that you all are having that your organization like what's the thing that we can look out for to participate in coming up soon? So one of the things, honestly, we do a lot of work at the grassroots level. So each cities are different. Um, we are working with activists nationally to come up with more of a national plan for the big ask. Right now, we want to make a big, bigger ask than even the things I, I said to you right now. But please, please, people, when you speak to mayors and city council members and school board members and congressmen, make sure that they are on the hook for answering to you about how the children and the families are doing in their cities and that they can't wash their hands in these very prosperous cities of families that are hurting, really hurting economically and need some relief. We need to get some funds and some resources into hands of families and, and for students. Chris Stewart, CEO of Bright Beam, shining a light on the reality around the country uh, that some in some of the most prosperous cities, we still have the best of times and the worst of times. Can you tell everyone how they can get up with you and follow you? You can find me uh, on Twitter at Citizen Stewart. Absolutely. Thanks so much for your work and your time. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it.